0: Last week we we began this uh, eight-part series through the book of Acts entitled, Go Boldly. And uh, the reason for the series is real simple. I I want us to be bold. Uh, Unfortunately, sometimes we're not. Sometimes I, I get the sense that, and this includes me, sometimes our wishbone is where our backbone needs to be. And that's really unfortunate because if you are a believer, then you need to know that your DNA is boldness. Uh, and sometimes I, I think people kind of doubt that because you say, well, I just don't know that I'm shaped that way, or you don't know my personality or disposition, but, but the way you've been shaped is boldness. You know what DNA is? The DNA is what makes you you, and when we don't live in keeping with how we've been created to be or recreated to be, supernaturally made to be, we don't get joy in our lives. In, in fact, if you're a parent, one of your responsibilities, you know, is to help your children not only come to grips with, but to actually accept and fall in love with the way that they've been made. And as parents, we know that if our children don't really fully embrace the way they've made their gifts, their talents, their shape, they're not going to get joy out of their life. I was uh, doing some reading this last week, and and I don't say this a lot, but I I generally do try to read uh, a book a week, uh, but they're not always real thick. And so I came across this one book. It's entitled Spoon. Do we have a picture of that? Uh, now, before you judge me, I, I want you to know, and I'm not bragging, but, but I'm just saying, I read the whole book in one sitting. Uh, and so uh, here's, here's what the book's about. It's about this spoon, named Spoon, very creative. And uh, Spoon isn't real happy with how he's been made to be, and so he spends some time thinking about, I wish I were, were a fork or, or you a know, knife or chopsticks, and so let me just kind of read part of, part of it to you. I don't want to spoil the whole book for you. Uh, it's just that... He says, I, it's just that I don't know. All my friends have it so much better than me, like Knife. Knife is so lucky, he gets to cut. He gets to spread. I never get to cut or spread. And his mom says, yes, Knife is pretty spiffy that way, isn't he? And Spoon is just not happy because he wants to be something else other than, than who he's been made to be. And, and these high-level conversations go on about fork and chopsticks and all the rest, and eventually he starts to get it. And he falls in love with who he's been made to be, and he's buying what his mom is telling him, like, your friends will never know the joy of diving headlong into bowls of ice cream. They'll never be able to twirl around in a mug or relax in a hot cup of tea. And by the end of the story, Spoon is so excited about who he's been made to be, he can hardly go to sleep. Okay, that's the book. And now, I just summarized it for you. But like I said, I read the whole thing in one sitting. But that's the, that's the story. And uh, the thing is, we have a certain DNA, we have a certain makeup a certain nature, certain characteristics, certain quality. We know that's true of us just as human beings. But if you are a member of the body of Christ, you have a particular DNA because we're all members of one and the same body. You want to guess what that DNA is? It's boldness. And you say, well, I'm just not so sure about that. Well, just read through the book of Acts. Okay? You can't help but see all throughout the book of Acts that if you're a member of the body of Christ and you've been given the Holy Spirit, you've got boldness. Okay, just So for example, let me just give you an overview real quickly. You get over to chapter 4 and then chapter 5, you see that Peter and John, they're They're preaching the gospel, and the powers that be are saying, hey, you got to stop this, stop talking about Jesus, and they pray for more boldness, and they get bolder, and eventually they get arrested, and they get thrown into prison, and then they get flogged. The Sanhedrin, the powers that be say, you know, we're not taking this anymore. Flog them, and if you've seen the passion of the Christ, you know that could leave your body permanently scarred, and they get whipped within an inch of their life and all the rest, and if that's you and you're in that position, how do you respond? Do you pray, dear Lord, please rain down fire and brimstone on these people? Dear Lord, just give me safety, you know, surround me with a hedge of protection, put angels around me, keep me safe. That's not how they respond. Peter and John in the early church, here's what they do. They actually rejoice in the midst of the suffering. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And they keep preaching boldly. And it just keeps going on like this until you get to Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, the church has its first major conflict. And they have this big old gathering of all the leaders. And the nature of the conflict is, is the church for us or is it for everyone? For whom is the church? And they have this big discussion and they see what God has been up to. And they say, well, the church isn't just for us. It's actually for everyone. And then they put meat on the bones of their decision. And the bottom line is they decide we're going to be bold because we see that God's been bringing in these Gentiles and even though reaching out to Gentiles and bringing Gentiles in is a, it's really difficult and it's stretching us and it's a different culture and all the rest, we are going to be bold, and they keep moving from there. Then you get to acts 28, the end of the, the book, and there's Paul, once again, he's in prison and he's in Rome, and, and he's got this one guard, and, and he's in solitary confinement essentially for a couple of years, and, and he's writing letters. And when he's writing to the people, he never writes, "Hey, pray that I get out of jail." You know what he prays for? He says, I want you guys to pray with me for boldness. And then you get to the very last verse of the last chapter of the book of Acts. And here's what Luke says of Paul, that he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's how the book ends. The book of Acts essentially ends with this implicit invitation. Now it's time for you to write your chapter and what's the next chapter going to be are you going to write a story of boldness are you going to write a story of what you went to see because you went to see what it was that you didn't see before because you're willing to go wherever it was that god took you that you'd never been before or is the last chapter that you're going to write or the next chapter you're going to write going to be something along the lines of well you know i lived a safe life and i prayed for safety and then i died without doing anything extraordinary for god and manifesting his spirit in my life in the uh, in the first service, there, there's a, a lady, some of you know, or Deb Anderson, and she gave me this little button, strangely enough, today. It said, I'm an Acts 29er. She said, you know what that means? It's like, yeah, we're in Acts 29 right now. You're writing the story. Or actually, it's Jesus Christ who's writing the story through you by the Holy Spirit. And the open-ended question that we get at the end of the book of Acts is, are you running with the story or not? Are you going to be living in keeping with the DNA that has been given you or not. And so today, here's what we're doing as we continue in this series entitled Go Boldly. We're going to go back to how the church got started, back when the church was born and spanked and when we breathed our first breath and it was the Holy Spirit because that gives us a really, really good picture of how God wanted it to be in us from the very beginning. We're getting to our DNA here. So we're going to talk about the beginning of the church and before we get too far into that, Let's just kind of talk about what we mean by church because if you're going to ask the average person, what do you think when you think about church, you know what they're going to say. They're going to say, oh, the church, it's a building, it's a set of doctrines, it's traditions, it's a hierarchy, it's a structure, it's a particular liturgy or way of worshiping or whatever. And that's not what church is. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, okay? you Say that with me, ekklesia, ekklesia. It's the word we get the greek word from which we get the english words like ecclesiastical if you hear something about ecclesiastical structures they're just talking about church structures talk about ecclesiology is the study of the church ecclesia now the etymology if you break it down is ek out and ecclesia comes from the greek verb kaleo which is to call the called out ones now the the word ecclesia was around before the church was invented or conceived by christ or any of this it just meant assembly but it always had to do with the people that's who the church is. We are, we're, the, we're the people, we're the assembly, we're the, the called out ones of Jesus Christ empowered by his spirit to go forth expanding the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. But it's, it's about the people. It's never been about the buildings or anything else. The church is the people. And that's what Jesus thought from the very beginning even before we get to the book of Acts. You go over to Matthew chapter 16, and you remember Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're this prophet, others say you're this prophet. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And then Peter gives this rather famous response. Peter replied, you are the Christ. That's the Messiah, the anointed one of God. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And and Jesus says, yeah, that's right. God gave you that answer, 100%. Thumbs up. Then moving on down in verse 18... On this rock, that's the gospel truth, the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. On this rock, on this truth, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and guess what the word is that Jesus uses there for church? Ecclesia. The called out people. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my people on this foundational truth. Oh, and here's how my people are going to act. They're going to charge the gates of hell. They're going to go forth boldly, and when they charge the gates of hell, the gates of hell are coming down. It was in Jesus' mind that we were the people, and that we were going to be especially outrageously bold. But somewhere along the line, people kind of got things mixed up, and uh, we know that about three centuries into this, we messed it all up and started thinking of the church not as the people of God, but as the building of God or the house of God and people started thinking about well the church now is what the temple used to be in the Old Testament the intersection of heaven and earth it was a location it was a place and that led to all kinds of messed up thinking but in the New Testament God goes out of his way to let us know that no 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 the the temple now it's my people you're the temple of the Holy Spirit it's my people the church that's the intersection between heaven and earth and it's not a particular location but when people got messed up in their thinking and started thinking of the church as a location or a building, well, it led to worse theology and all kinds of terrible, terrible practices because when it became a building, well, whoever owned the building or controlled the building controlled the doctrine and the teachings and the decisions and the practices, and that just messed up things really, really badly because when, when people who have control issues start submitting the truth to their power rather than their power to the truth... Well, it, it, things just go crazy, and we got things like the Inquisitions and the Crusades because people somehow, in some respect or another, thought that the people who run the buildings kind of own the traditions and the truth, and the whole time they forgot that the kingdom of God already has a king, and it's not you or me or even Peter or any of his ancestors or some sort of lineage or something. It's Jesus. So the people, it's the, that's the church, We're the church. We're the body of Christ. So when we get back to the beginnings of it all in Acts chapter 1 and and 2, it's just showing us here's our personal history. Here's who you are. And you say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. But if right now you're a member of his body, as people back then were a member of his body, every body has its own particular DNA. And so what we're doing as we're going back to the beginning is we're looking at who it is that we've been made to be because if you don't live in keeping with who you've been made to be, two things happen. Number one, you're never satisfied with the life that you live because you've been wasting time. And the other thing is things aren't getting done that need to be get, getting done because you're Jesus' plan a b c d e f g h i j k l m n o p P all the way through Z. It's not like, oh, hey, I've got two plans. One is the church, my body, and then I've got another plan over here in case people don't live up to their particular calling and live in accordance with their DNA. No, you're God's only plan. That's it. All chips are in on you. That's what we're talking about. So with all of that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through His Word. We're going to be looking at Acts chapters 1 and 2, but let's go ahead and stand for the first three verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. May God bless the reading of his word. He may be seated. Now, just real quickly, let me just ask, why, why do you think Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days and gave them many convincing proofs? Well, because that's what it took. It didn't fit within their worldview for anybody coming back from the dead. It really didn't fit within the Jewish worldview that a, that a person could be the, the fullness of, of God, but he appears to them again and again. He told them this is going to happen. But he, they thought, well, are we seeing a, a vision? Is this a dream? Is this a ghost? And he convinced them, no, no, it's really me. I've risen from the dead. And so if people ever think, well, yeah, people back then were real gullible and everybody wanted to believe this true, It's like, no, 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 no. The hardest people to convince were the ones in the very beginning. But they got it. They saw he'd been risen from the dead. And during that 40-day period of time when he offers them many convincing proofs and comes to them again and again and again, he's talking about the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? You know, basically, in a nutshell, the kingdom of God is the kingdom, the realm where God is king. Not that complicated. It's where God is our Father and grace is the air that we breathe and forgiveness and mercy flow like water. It's the, the reign of God in the lives of people. And we pray this. You know, God, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Th- thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make up there, come down here. The kingdom of God is is up there coming down here. And it came down in Jesus. That's why Jesus would walk around and say, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand because it was there in Jesus. But in this time that Jesus is appearing to them again and again and again, a time of transition is happening, a, a moment of transition from the time when God was distinctly present, walking the earth in the body of Jesus, to the time when God would be distinctly present, walking the earth continuing to be in the body of Christ only the body of Christ not being one body but a multiplicity of body his people the church in in other words when when th- this is why Luke writes I'm just telling you before in the gospel of Luke in this book that I wrote before that's just about what Jesus began to do and teach and the implication is Jesus is continuing the ministry that he began remember Jesus back in uh, John 17 he says or John 16 he says, look, I've, I've got to go that the Holy Spirit will come. And he talks in the book of John about how I'm sending you this guide, this, this comforter, this counselor, this teacher, and he's going to guide you in all truth. And he says, greater things will you do than I. What is being communicated here is when Jesus suffered and died and rose again, that was great. All of that's big stuff, but so too is the ascension. When Jesus left and went up to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, it doesn't mean that that's when his ministry ended, That's when his ministry began on a whole nother level. In other words, Jesus ascending to heaven doesn't mean that, oh, Jesus is no longer present. What the ascension means is Jesus is present all over. That Jesus continues to teach and to do great things by the power of the Holy Spirit from a position of all authority through us, his body. His body got Bigger. And when you start thinking about it in those terms, which is exactly how Luke thinks about it, doesn't that kind of embolden you to recognize, hey, maybe I ought to put aside all of my little, you know, small agendas, and maybe I ought to set aside, you know, these low expectations, and maybe I ought to start looking at these obstacles in my life as not somehow insurmountable Because Jesus Christ is still on the move, and I'm His plan, and His Spirit is at work in my life. His ministry is continuing on a whole other level, and that's through me and through you. That's the conviction of the early church, and it gets better. Look at what He says next. He says to the disciples, Hey, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift My Father promised Which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has talked to them about this over in John chapter seven. It said, you know, that you're going to drink living waters and the Spirit's going to be flowing through you, and all kinds of incredible things are going to happen, and greater things will you do than I, and that's coming. And then the disciples say this. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus' like, Oh man. You guys are still thinking about a geopolitical worldly power and i'm thinking about the divine power of god up there coming down here in people's lives globally you're concerned about me pushing aside the political and and religious powers so that i as the intersection of heaven and earth can somehow rule over this little piece of territory in the middle east it's very frustrating but you know sometimes disciples are kind of slow to catch on and so jesus just tells them look it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father set by His own authority. In other words, that's not your concern. That's the Father's business. i got bigger fish for you to fry. i got bigger things on my mind. Here's your grand calling. Here's what's happening. Here's your DNA. Here's what you need to be focused on. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth. In other words, the big calling here is you're going to be my witnesses. And in the Greek, the word witness means witness. It's just like, you know, you get on the stand in a court of law and you just tell what it is that you've seen and heard. Jesus Christ suffered. He died. He died. You know, he's crucified, he died, he got buried, rose again from the dead. You just tell the facts. It's not just the promotion of a philosophy or a particular worldview or all the teachings of Jesus. You're just testifying to what you've seen and heard. And you're going to do this in Jerusalem. To which they would have said, oh, wait a second, I'm not so sure about that because Jesus, didn't you just get killed in Jerusalem like 50, 50 days ago? And you're going to be my witnesses in in Judea, which is a little bit better because the broader area, they kind of liked Jesus. He was, he was the People were a fan. And you're going to be my witnesses in Samaria. No, oh, that's terrible because the Samaritans were the people nobody really wanted to have anything to do with. That was the ethnic group that they thought didn't even belong in the land. And then he says, you're going to be my witnesses to the utter ends of the earth, to which the disciples were probably thinking, okay, uh, Jesus, you know how big the world is? To which Jesus was saying, you guys have no idea. But anyways, here's how it goes. He sends the Holy Spirit, and they're going to be witnesses where it's difficult, where it's pleasant, to people that they may naturally not want to have anything to do with, and to the utter ends of the earth, which means they're going to be totally stretched. But when the Holy Spirit comes, here's what's going to happen You're going to be my witnesses. And that's basically the summary of, of chapter one. Now, they don't exactly know what to do as they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit had not come, so they gather together, they pray, they replace Judas who betrays Jesus, and and that brings us to the end of that chapter. And then the story really picks up in chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, Pentecost is 50 days after Passover, where did the first Passover take place in what country? It's not Israel, Egypt. Yeah, you remember the story. You, you remember the conflict between Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner, right? And uh, the people are in bondage and Jesus sets them free. But when Jesus takes them out of bondage, um, when God does this, he brings them to a place. It's not just that he takes them from somewhere, he's bringing them to somewhere. And he brings them to Mount Sinai where the law is given. And the people are, are, are now basically given an identity. They're formed into a nation at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai happens 50 days, according to the tradition, 50 days after they're brought out of their captivity. That's Pentecost. And so the, eventually the Jews start celebrating Pentecost in this feast of first fruits, which was them thanking God for what was yet to come. When we celebrate Thanksgiving, we thank God for what has already come, what we already have, what He's already blessed us with. But the Feast of first fruits associated with Pentecost was a thanking of God, thank you for what it is that you're going to give us. All of these things are wrapped up in Pentecost. So it's interesting that the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost because that's the time when God gives a unique identity to His people. It's the time when God in chapter 2 is essentially saying, I'm giving you a foretaste of what is yet to come. I'm giving you a a taste of what it is that is in store for you, what I want to do and accomplish through you. And back in the Old Testament, I came down on Mount Sinai, this mountain that no one was allowed to touch, but now in chapter 2, he's coming down upon his people. His people are the mountain of God's presence And they're the ones that are going to be touching the utter ends of the earth. Check this out in verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they, that's the 120 of them who were praying, were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. And if you remember in the book of Exodus on Mount Sinai, there's the, the storm, the wind, and then there's the fire. Same thing happening here on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. The crowd's going, what in the world's going on? Because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who were speaking Galileans, then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Okay, moving on down to verse 12. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. So what does God do here? He takes this comparatively small group of people huddled together in prayer and he pours out his Holy Spirit on them and they start speaking in languages that they haven't studied. And in verses 9 through 11, it talks about 15 different cultures, ethnicities, people groups, this is amazing, and here's the point. You've got to notice this, and it is it is so remarkable. From day one, the church never was one language or one culture. From the day the church was born and spanked and breathed in the Holy Spirit, the church was multicultural and multi ethnic. Jesus said You're going to be my witnesses to the utter ends of the earth. And in a certain respect, on the day the church was born, the church was global. This just sends chills up and down my spine thinking about this. Because on the first day, there wasn't anybody in the church that would be thinking, Hey, this is our little group. This is our little family. Nobody would imagine to say, This is our comfort zone. This is our safe place. This is this is This is our family. Because from day one, Jesus operates in such a way through the Holy Spirit as to send people out saying, now is your time to be bold. What I told you that you thought you could never do would ever want to do, I'm telling you, by my Spirit, I'm empowering you to do. So go and proclaim boldly. From day one, the church was born in boldness, with boldness, for boldness. Bold. That's our DNA. Now, here's Peter, and he stands up on opening day, and he figures, well, it's entirely appropriate that I proclaim the gospel to these people because while lots of people are proclaiming the gospel and the wonders of God in these different languages, people have gathered together, and it's up to Peter to sort of define some things and, and you know, wrap it all up, put a bow on top. And so he stands up on opening day, and here's what he says, and this is so interesting the way Peter begins this. He starts saying, listen carefully to what I say these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, I want you to notice something. This is the first sermon ever preached following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Peter starts with a touch of humor. Okay, did did you get this? Hey! I just want you guys to know we're not drunk because we followers of Jesus, we don't start our wine drinking until the afternoon. I mean, that... That's what he's doing. Now, I, I love, Now, if you didn't catch the humor, you don't find that funny, it's just because you've been a Baptist for way too long, okay? <laughs> but he starts out with some humor here, and I love this, and I want to point this out because being filled with the Holy Spirit and taking yourself too seriously do not go together. There's something about grace where you can kind of laugh at yourself and the situation, and you don't take yourself too seriously, and you have to defend yourself and all the rest because... He's righteous. I'm not. And I'm all okay with this. And so he starts out with a touch of humor. And I think probably part of the reason that some of the people thought, well, they've been they've been drinking too much wine is because everybody was happy. Uh, because in the Old Testament, in Jewish culture, wine was associated with joy. And so when they're talking about the wonders and the signs and the miracles of God, people are ecstatic. They're excited. They're joyful. And so If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's joy and there's humor. That's the tone of Peter. I love it. But then he gets right to the heart of the message, and it's the message that all of us should essentially be proclaiming. Here it is. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose. This was God's plan and foreknowledge. He he knew this. He knew it was coming. It was a sole plan. He worked his plan out according to his own glorious purposes. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. And this is so pointed. You people killed Jesus. I mean, that's you know, wow. You know, I just got accused of killing Jesus. Well, yeah. And uh, it was our sins that put Jesus on the cross. This is so bold. This is so very clear. And then we don't have time to look at all this, but he references all kinds of scriptures that they would have considered authoritative, demonstrating that this was in accordance with God's plan and his foreknowledge. And although they, with wicked men, put Jesus to death, this was in his plan all along, that though they wanted to kill him, he was the king of kings and lord of lords, he was the Messiah, but he willingly went before them as their king, dying for them. Talk about a heart wound. Verse 32, later on, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact exalted to the right hand of god he has received from the father the promised holy spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear in other words hey this is just god at work in our lives what we're saying what you're seeing what you're hearing what what you're witnessing here that's just god bearing witness through us and so while there's boldness there's incredible humility because they're saying this isn't us this isn't me It's not that we're so incredibly wonderful or, you know, I'll pat myself on the back, look at me speaking in these other tongues, and say, this is all God. And so there's tremendous boldness, but it's a boldness that is born of a humility that recognizes I am right now a part of something that is so much greater than me. And in that humility, you embrace what it is that God is doing through your life rather than fighting against it. And that's what gives the boldness that is particularly joyful because you recognize in the midst of the testimony, I am so privileged to be talking to you about the wonders of God. I'm so privileged to be one of his people and it is a blessing and I'm speaking to you from a point of humility. And what God is doing in my life, He wants to do in your life too. That's the essence of what they're saying. And then it gets down to verse 36, and this is so bold. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And this is revolutionary because at the time, you're only allowed to basically say, Caesar is Lord. He's the one who's in control. He's the one who's run the shots. He's the one who runs the world. And and he's saying, no, this is Jesus. He's the one who's in control. And so the Almighty, who became become flesh. He did this all for you when you wanted to kill Him. But even when He knew you were wanting to kill Him, He was wanting to die for you. And just this realization of what has occurred and what they've done and what He's done utterly undoes them, breaks them, cuts them to the heart. And the crowd says to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, Attend church regularly. No, that's, that's not really what he said. Um, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. God. <laughs> and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which, of course, is nothing less than God indwelling you as his temple. You and me, those of us who killed Christ, intersection of heaven and earth, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. In other words, this isn't just for you and it's not just for the people in Jerusalem and it's not just for your children. It's for all whom God will call. And that means as soon as you receive this message, it's up to you to bring this message to others because this isn't just for you. It wasn't just for us. It's not just for you. It's for all whom God will call. Now, what do they have to do? Well, he says repent and be baptized. Now, repent is a fancy word. I'm just going to cut right to the chase. You know, well, it means turn around, do a 180. Well, yeah, that's kind of part of it. But it's to turn... It's to do a 180 in your thinking too. It has to do with your mind and the disposition of your life where everything in your thinking, everything in your behavior turns toward Christ where you stop trusting in what you do and what you could do and in what Jesus Christ has done and everything, your behaviors, your thinking, your attitude, your disposition, your lifestyle, it's all centered around Jesus. That's repentance. And so he says get baptized. Why? Because baptism is just about, you know, you come forward, you jump in the water and you get dunked. It's being immersed in Jesus. You identify yourself with Him in terms of His death and His burial and His resurrection. In other words, He's saying you, you, need to, you need to repent and make it public in a way where you let everybody know that your life is in Christ. That it's no longer you who live, but, but it's Christ who lives in you. That's the whole point. And it is radical. Repent and come up here Jump in the water. You came one way, you're leaving another. You came here dry, you got to leave wet. And 3,000 people take him up on it and they jump in the water. Now that's super bold. But it's the only appropriate response to a message that's bold, boldly given. When it's a bold and clear message, the only appropriate response is a bold one. And that's what people do. And that's how the church gets started. That's our DNA, is boldness. And we know from church history that follows that in the, next, in the next couple of centuries, millions and millions of Romans are brought into this movement of God. And people all throughout the Roman Empire basically find a joy and a peace and a purpose and a meaning that they've never had before. Bold. So the question is now: Okay, are we living in keeping with our DNA, or are we, in some respect or another, resisting it and and fighting against it? And I'd have to say there are a lot of us here that I know we're being bold. I just want to give you one example of this. is kind of it does my heart good. Uh, some of you, I think, you came out Friday night, Saturday night, on the square, and there were the all the people watching the stars and astronomy. This was basically Peggy Lemons taking the lead. Brad Ballard had been teaching this class about you need to find your niche and you need to go for it and you need to be bold. What is it that you could do or have a passion toward? And so Peggy goes out there, and this happened, I guess, a weekend ago, and then she goes out on Friday. About 120 people show up. She's there on Saturday, and about 240 people show up, and they just are watching the stars, and here's kind of what's out there. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, you know, the, the skies declare his handiwork. And people are just coming and they're having conversations and they're out there, you know, looking at Mars and Venus and all the rest and, and I guess Saturn's rings, just really cool. I, don't, I didn't have like a particular passion to go out there and set up some telescopes, but here's somebody with a particular interest in science and, and in, in astronomy and all the rest and just kind of running with it. God's given us different kind of shapes and different inclinations and some of us, we're a little bit more separated out from the culture. It takes John the Baptist types too. He's out in the wilderness. He, you know, he doesn't shower. If that's you, please do at least once a week, okay? But he's kind of separated from the culture. He's kind of a weird dude. And Jesus says he's the most righteous person. Of course, I think Jesus is excluding himself. And Jesus is on the other end of the spectrum. He's accused of being a wine-bibber and a glutton. Why? Because he ate and drank with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. So you got Jesus over here doing it one way and John the Baptist is doing it another way. And Jesus didn't eat too much and he didn't drink too much wine. But And John the Baptist wasn't a jerk, but they just took kind of different paths and reached different people, but in different respects and different ways were incredibly bold. How is boldness showing up in your DNA. I want to close this morning. I'm going to invite the the praise team up here. You can go ahead and take your places. And the rest of us, I just want us to bow our heads, close our eyes. And I'm just going to read some questions for your own meditation and consideration. Just between you and God, just answer these questions as best you can. Here we are 2,000 years later. Do you have a profound sense of God's calling on your life to be a witness? Do you live with this awareness that that as the body of Christ, we are the temple of God, the holy mountain upon which God has come down, the point of intersection between heaven and earth for people? Do you live a life and pray prayers that reflect your confidence that Jesus is alive and on his throne and is authoritatively at work in this world through us. Are you confident that God is on the move even to the ends of the earth? Do you have the sense that God has given you his holy spirit and that there is no message in the world like the message of the gospel? Are the risks you take and the dreams you dream bold enough to fit the greatness of the gospel, the greatness of the Holy Spirit you've received, and the greatness of your calling? How is this DNA of boldness being expressed in your life? How could this DNA of boldness be expressed in your life? Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would just send revival, make us bold, and live in keeping with how you created us your body to operate under your headship, under your authority as you continue to do and teach great things. And by the power of your spirit, whom you gave us in dwelling us as your temple. God, show us where we need to adjust. And make us bold. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You stand as we continue in worship. I'll be at the back to talk with you, pray with you. Brad's back there as well. You just remain open uh, with God as we continue in worship.